Well, good morning, family. Good to see you guys. We are here to worship the Lord. He's a glorious God, isn't he? It's been a great morning so far. It's just been awesome. If you are a guest, we want to welcome you here this morning as well. Uh, We uh, just started a series in Genesis called Wrestling with God. Wrestling with God's our series. So if you would open your Bibles up to Genesis, we're going to pick up in uh, chapter 29, verses 15 through 30. Genesis 29, 15 through 30, if you will give your attention to the reading of God's word. Then said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall, be your, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. And Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you for seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, Is it not so done in our country to give the younger before the... It is not done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of of this one, and we will give you... The other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave his daughter Rachel to his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, John. Let's pray. King Jesus, we love you. We praise you for who you are. You are the resurrected, living, listening, active God of the world. Jesus, we pray that you would speak to us through your scriptures, that your power would be present that in your word you would give us a mirror to expose us to ourselves and be able to see ourselves clearly and also give us a window through your scripture to see you clearly. Reveal yourself to us, Lord. We need to see you and be shaped by you. We need to hear from you today. We need a word from God today. So show us, uh, show us these things. Show us Jesus today. It's in his name we pray, amen. 
Amen. In uh, 1974, songwriter Harry Chapin uh, penned the number one hit. It was his number one hit, Cats in the Cradle. You guys have all heard that song, right? A few of you, probably everybody. Cats in the Cradle. It's a haunting song, isn't it? Especially if you're a dad. It's, it, it tells a story of a father who is providing for his son. He's providing his physical needs for his son through work. Uh, but he is not around to guide him into and through manhood. Uh, One of the lyrics goes like this. My son turned 10 just the other day. He said, thanks for the ball, Dad. I'm going to try not to cry. My gosh. (laughs) He said, thanks for the ball, Dad. Come on, let's play. Can you teach me to throw? I said, not today. I got a lot to do. He said, that's okay. And he walked away, but his smile never dimmed. It said, I'm going to be like him. Yeah. You know I'm going to be like him. The father in this song, he doesn't realize that his choice to idolize work, to idolize his career, will have reverberating consequences on his son and on his own life in the years to come. By the end of the song, the roles have completely reversed. So the dad now wants to spend time with his son, but the son doesn't have time to spend with his dad because he's married, got kids, he's got his own job, he's got his own stuff to do now. He really has grown up to be just like him. The dad feels the bitter consequences of loving the wrong thing. If only he would have known sooner. If only he would have realized this sooner. As we saw last week, Jacob is a man living life on his terms. He's living life according to his own rules and his own values. And up to this point, Jacob has been able to escape the negative consequences all of his lying and his swindling and and using people. He's had this encounter with God, and God has called Jacob to trust him. He's made these promises and said, Jacob, trust me. But he doesn't yet trust God with his life. So in this chapter of the story, God is going to providentially help Jacob begin to feel the consequences of his sins. And see, here's the deal, guys. You and I have the same problem that Jacob does. We cannot trust the Lord until we feel the effects of trusting something other than God. We cannot trust the Lord until we feel the effect of trusting other things. That's what we need in our life. See, the Bible has a word for trusting something other than God. You know what that word is? It's called idolatry. And it's talked about all through the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. Idolatry. Today, we see Jacob experience the consequences of trusting idols instead of trusting the Lord. We're going to find out what that means for us today. We're going to answer three questions today. What does idolatry look like? What does it do to us? And what can God do despite it? What does idolatry look like? What does it do to us? And what can God do despite it? So first, what does it look like? Well, idolatry looks like loving something more than God. Idolatry looks like Loving something more than God. We need to be able to recognize it so when we see it in our own heart, we can identify it. Verse 16 says, Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. 
And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. So Jacob, we didn't didn't read this part, but to bring us up to speed in the narrative, Jacob meets Rachel at a well, and uh, she takes him to her father, Laban, which is what all daughters ought to do, by the way. (laughs) She takes him to her father, Laban, who just so happens to be his uncle, Laban. Jacob's uncle. And Jacob is completely taken with Rachel, but the Bible tells us something else right here. This is an interesting little fact that's going to play out in the rest of this chapter of his life. She has an older sister, Leah, and they have different levels of attractiveness, different levels, so to speak, of beauty. Leah has weak eyes. That's how it's translated into English. She has weak eyes. Literally, the word means gentle eyes. They're not strong. They're gentle. They're soft. Gentle eyes, all right? So she's older, but she's got these younger-looking eyes. And so this is contrasted with her sister, who's spoken of immediately following, Rachel. Well, her best features are, well, everything. (laughs) She's great. She's got this shapely body. She's got this beautiful appearance, the Bible says. Rachel has that shapely body and a beautiful face. Whatever that standard was for a shapely body and attractive face in that Bedouin society, she had it. So I imagine her to be kind of a thicker gal because she's a sh- she takes care of the sheep. She's probably kind of buff. And he looks at her and goes, wow, wow, you're amazing. Her sister wasn't that good looking, but she had nice eyes. But Rachel was a total knockout. Like guys crossed rooms to talk to her. You understand what I'm saying? Jacob wanted the more beautiful Rachel. He loved what he saw, and he's totally over the moon for Rachel. He can't get her out of, her, out of his mind. It's almost like this. This is what's so interesting in going through books of the Bible and, and chapters of the Bible. It's like this. There's this deceptive man who can always see every angle of a situation. He can always read people and read things, and he can see the angle and how to get the best advantage, but he's like under this woman's spell all of a sudden now. It's really kind of interesting. It's funny. I mean, he is just smitten with Rachel, and not like a little bit. Like, he's totally smitten, right? Like, he's in deep smit. You know what I'm saying? And we're, we're going to find out how deep of smit he is in later as the story goes along. Here's how determined he is to get Rachel. Jacob has no money for a marriage dowry, right? Because he's broke. He didn't have a pillow for his head. And he's looking at her, he's like, I'm going to make her mine. I've got to make her mine. So what's he going to do? Well, a normal dowry for a shepherd would be the equivalent of three years' salary. So he comes up with his plan. says he doesn't have any money to give his prospective father-in-law. He makes this ridiculous offer to his uncle Laban that he knows Laban won't refuse. He makes him an offer he can't refuse. So he thinks he's in control. He thinks he's got this sewed up. Hey, I want to marry your younger daughter, Leah. Not the older one, the younger one. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to work for free for you for seven years. Does that sound like a good deal? We got a deal? You want to sign that? Let's go. This is Jacob being Jacob, right? Men, could you just imagine this? Could you put yourself in this situation? Imagine working for your father-in-law 
for free. Not for seven months, for seven years. Only to, after that, be able to marry the girl that you really like. Could you imagine the situation? Imagine making that deal with your future father-in-law. Like, all the father-in-laws in the room were just went like, hey, that's a good idea. That's a good deal. I like that, right? And all the son-in-laws went like, that is foolish. Well, you know what? That's the point. That's the point. Jacob loves, desires Rachel so much that it overrides everything else in his line of sight. He doesn't care what he has to do to get that thing. I want that. I want it. It puts him in a vulnerable position. But see, here's the deal. I mean, Jacob doesn't even seem to notice that he's in a vulnerable position, does he? Not till way later, not till it's too late. The Bible says that the seven years feels like seven days for Jacob. He's whistling while he works, because that's always the thing about, I'm going to make her mine. I'm going to make her mine. I'm going to get Rachel. Just kind of whizzes right through all that. His desire for her is so intoxicating. Think Romeo and Juliet, kind of infatuation and love. Think Edward and Bella, all right? (laughs) It's an all-consuming love. It's borderlining on sheer stupidity. This smart guy is not so smart all of a sudden. Family, something has become an idol in your heart when we love it and we desire it more than we love and desire the Lord who has made us. That's how you can tell. This is a great diagnostic tool here. When it is the most dominating thing that we think about, what is it that you think about in your free time when your mind wanders? What does it wander to? Because that's what's dominating your thoughts. That's an idol in your heart. It's the most dominating thing that we talk about. What's the thing that you always seem to just always got to talk about? You always got to fall back to that. You downshift into whatever that is. That's, the, that's an idol in your heart. It's, sh- it's peeking out. It's showing itself to you. It, it's what we arrange our weekly schedules around. It's the thing that we think, I must have that to have a good life. Is this making sense? I've got to have that or my life's not worth anything or that's going to make me happy. That's an idol in your heart. You see, for, for some of us, it's, it's people's approval. We don't want to disappoint people, so we work constantly. We work hard. We labor so that people will not be disappointed in what they see in us or the decisions that we make or the choices that we make with our life or at work or whatever it is because it matters. So everything goes through these filters in this internal dialogue. We're working hard for that. For some of us, the idol of our heart is, that, is finding romantic love or physical love, kind of like Jacob. That, that, that's the thing. We've got to have that. And so we're constantly at work at finding, finding someone who is interested in us. And then we've got to work to keep that someone interested in us. It's kind of what's always dominating kind of the de- decision-making in our life. But for some of us, it's our children. It's our own children. We have to be sure that they're happy. We, we, we have to be sure that they love us back, whatever that is. We have to be sure that we're seen as a good dad, a good mom. That's the most important thing right now because God forbid they think you're not really a good dad or a good mom. That would just break us. 
Can I just get into some people's business? See, the thing is about idols is that they're not always sinful things, brothers and sisters. It's not always drug, sex, and rock and roll, okay? Sometimes that is. But most of the time, they're actually good things. They're actually gifts that God has given to us, okay? They're good things that we have elevated to be the ultimate thing. And if I don't have that, I don't know, I don't know who I am anymore. I don't know what I would do with myself if I lost that. They are things that we trust more than God to give us meaning and satisfaction and, and ultimately life. In other words, they're disordered loves. They're loves that are out of order. They're second place things, good things, that have become first place things in our desires, in our affections, in our thoughts. That's what an idol is. They're not like little physical objects necessarily. See, look, you guys and me, we can say this. We can say all day long that we love God and maybe even convince ourselves of that. We can look at, yeah, I, I checked this box in Christ alone, by faith alone, grace alone. I love God all day long to we're blue in the face. But look at what you love. As Christian philosopher Jamie Smith says, you are what you love because what you love shapes you. Look at what you love. Look at what you spend your money on or won't spend your money on. Look at how you spend your time. What's gobbling up the most of your time right now? Look at who you're surrounding yourself with or won't surround yourself with. This is things that we need to do. This may be something you need to do today. Take an inventory of that stuff. Ask yourself some hard questions. And if you can't, invite someone else to ask you some hard questions that loves you, okay? Because that's telling you what you really love. So what does it do to us? Well, idolatry betrays us and it enslaves us. Idolatry betrays us and enslaves us. Check this out, verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. It literally reads in Hebrew, behold, she, Leah. <laughs> and Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Jacob completes seven years of work for Laban, and he wants his wife, Rachel. That's what he's been working for. Give me the woman. It's pretty blunt, actually. And notice here, Laban doesn't exactly answer him, does he? Does he? He didn't say, you're right, deal's a deal. He's just silent. He's going to let Jacob think what he wants. And so it begins. What's he do? He gathers a bunch of people in the community. He's going to get some witnesses. 
and they're going to have a, a wedding feast. Literally, it says a drinking feast. So just imagine, I just picture this. There's one side of a table, and you got Jacob on one side, and they're pounding the wine, and they're eating the whatever they're eating, the mutton or whatever there is they're eating. There's music, there's dancing, there's revelry. And I see him, hey, Uncle Laban, to my wife. And I see Uncle Laban going, yeah, to your wife. <laughs> have another drink, have another bite, have another dance, have another song. Indulge, it's a festival. And after everyone's full and everyone's tipsy and darkness has descended on the land, Jacob goes into the bridal suite to wait for his bride. But Laban gives him his older daughter, Leah. And she pretends to be her sister all night long. She pretends to be her sister all night. And in the morning light, Jacob rubs his head, he rolls over, and behold, Leah is laying beside him. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. That's like the music we hear. <laughs> oh my gosh, what did I do? What did you do to me? What's going on in this place? Like, listen, I don't know how bad your honeymoon was, but like, this has got to be the worst honeymoon in like the history of ever, right? <laughs> this is bad news for everybody. You know, I mean, he's going to be thinking like, this is not what I thought it would be. And you may have thought that on your honeymoon, but it wasn't, this, it wasn't that bad. What did I sign up for? You're not who I thought you were. Jacob made an idol out of Rachel. He thought she was the one to make his life complete. He thought she was the one that would give him a future and meaning and joy and pleasure and sons and all this stuff, right? That's what he's, I, that's what he's thinking in his mind. But when, it, when he finally had worked for seven years for his grand prize, she turned out to be Leah. She turned out to be Leah. She had been switched on him. There was a, a substitute. There was a reversal. And he was betrayed beyond belief in front of everyone. Brothers and sisters, here's the problem with loving something or loving someone more than God. Our idols never turn out to be what they promise to be. Did you hear that? Our idols never turn out to be what they promise us they'll be. I heard one pastor put it this way, our idols always claim to be Rachel, but they turn out to be Leah in the end. They do. We need to know this. In the morning light, when we see things more clearly, when we think that we finally got what we have been working for and spending money on and spending time on and energy on and burning calories to get, our false gods will betray us in the end. And they'll smile doing it. They will not do what they promise they'll do for us. We need to know this. See, they not only betray us, our idols also enslave us. Like, this is a serious thing. We need to be thinking about this, family, as a church. They enslave us. Jacob has to work another seven years for Rachel. If he really wants Rachel, he's got to work seven more years for free for Rachel. At the beginning of the story, Jacob thinks what? That he's setting the terms of the arrangement. Like he's always thought. And that's what idols do. Yeah, you set the terms for this arrangement. Sure, you can come and go whenever you want. 
You can have it, whatever you say. And he thinks he's in control. He thinks he's saying those terms. But really, what is he doing? Right from the beginning, what is he really doing? He's putting himself into servitude. He's putting himself into slavery for 14 years, and he doesn't even see it coming. Romans 6.16 puts it this way. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, and isn't that what Jacob did with Laban? He presented himself as an obedient slave. I will do this for you for seven years. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone or anything, we could say, as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one to whom you obey? Paul's like saying, hey, do you know, you're, like, you're, you're making yourself a slave. I gotta repeat it. You're a slave either to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. We need to think about this a little bit. In the end, we are slaves to our idols, whatever they may be, whoever they may be, no matter how nice or great they are. We serve them in the end. They don't serve us. See, for a lot of, Christ, for a lot of Christians, that can be our family. So it could go like this. Our greatest desire is to have children, to be a parent, to be a father or a mother. Our greatest desire is to have our children turn out right. Whatever that is. I want my children to turn out right. Whether that's to respect us or to, uh, to love us or to bring us honor as parents. And so what do we do? We devote hours and hours and hours and hours of our life investing it into our children, into their education, into their life, right? They're the main filter that all of our big decisions get filtered through. And so what do we do? We rearrange our schedules. We sacrifice sleep and sacrifice job promotions and vacations, even our personal health, even our own friends and friendships so that our children can have a good education or good health or that good life that we never had. That's what we're working for. So that they'll love us, so they'll turn out right. We'll be able to get the fruit of that. But in the end, they grow up, and you know what? They may not thank us for all that we've done for them. They may not thank us for all that we have done for them. They may grow up and feel like they were entitled to all of that. And so when we have made an idol out of them, what, ha what does that do? Well, that cuts deep, doesn't it? That feels like a betrayal, doesn't it? How dare you do that? I loved you. Right? Or maybe it's not that. Maybe they grow up and their life choices bring shame to us and to our family instead of honor. They got a rap sheet now. Or they made some lifestyle changes that uh, we, we can't go there with them. And it brings dishonor instead of honor to the family. You guys tracking with me? And so guess what? We don't get to brag about our children like all the other parents do. And, and when they become an idol, that feels like what? You betrayed me. You cheated me out of that ability to brag about you like all the other parents get to brag. I don't get to put that bumper sticker on my car. Why would you do that to me? What happened? Well, what's happening in this scenario? Well, the idol has betrayed us, and it has enslaved us. We believe that if we worked hard for 18 years, that they, that they would give us love back and honor and the satisfaction of being a good parent. Best mom ever, best dad ever. Maybe they'd even give us the honor of being a grandparent. But instead, they betrayed us by turning out different than what we originally envisioned and prized them to be.
because that's what happens with idols. Like Jacob, we say, hey, that wasn't the arrangement, kid. That wasn't the deal we had. Like, that's not why I paid for your college tuition, boy. That's not why I paid for those violin lessons. That's not why we let you go on that trip. That's not why we showed up at all those things. That's not the deal we had. Did I not work 18 years for a Rachel? Why are you a Leah? See, now I gotta work even harder to make up for all the years I lost. That's what idols do to us every time. It affects us in our families. See, maybe for you, it's not, it's, it's, it, family's not an idol. You're not married, you're not a parent, whatever. But maybe for you, it's your job. It's a job. You idolize a job. I gotta get that job, because if I get that job, well, life will be different. And so I don't care what I gotta sacrifice. I don't care if I gotta sacrifice my own relationship with Christ. I'm getting that job. I'm gonna work to get that position. Because that's what I love. Or maybe it's your education. This education, see, that's the thing I gotta have. That's the key to my success. So I don't care what I gotta sacrifice. I'm gonna get that uh, degree or ordination or certification or whatever it is. I'm gonna work for that. Or maybe it's romance. See, this person will save me from feeling lonely. So I don't care what morals I gotta give up. It's worth it. Or maybe it's just flat out control. It's control. You know what, if that person would just do what I want, life would be easier. Life would be better. If I could just work this situation my way, it would be better. So I don't care what I have to do. I'm gonna work it so it's this way. I don't know what the idol is for you, but there's a few. The point is this. All idols promise us pleasure. They promise us real freedom. They promise us salvation. But they turn out to be something else in the end. In the end, they give us a life filled with betrayal and slavery. They promise to be Rachel, but they always turn out to be Leah in the end. So what can the Lord do despite our idolatry? Good question, huh? Well, God uses our idols to discipline us. God uses our idols to discipline us. Check this out in verse 25 and 26 with me, guys. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Listen to the response. And Laban says, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Deceived, firstborn. We're gonna come back to those words in a minute. Remember, God has promised to be with Jacob wherever he goes. He's gonna be stuck with him like Velcro, right? Wherever he goes, he's not gonna abandon Jacob. So where is God in all of this mess? This is a dysfunctional family. It's only gonna get more dysfunctional. So where is God in all this? That's what I was asking as I was reading this. Well, God's actually right there. He's right there. He's working providentially through his uncle Laban to discipline young Jacob. Jacob is finally feeling the consequences of living life on his own terms without God. So God's there. 
God's actually being kind and loving Jacob right now. God is confronting Jacob with who he really is by using his own idols to reveal it. Let me say it again. God is confronting Jacob with who he really is by using his own idols to reveal it. Because that's the only way that's going to break through to him. So when Jacob says, why have you deceived me? The root word for, for deceive that he uses there is the same root word used to describe Jacob's deception of his firstborn brother Esau and his deception of Isaac, right? Rightly he's called Jacob, for he deceived me. Jacob means deceiver, trickster, right? The fact that these words, the words of pain and being deceived, would come out of the mouth of a known deceiver is sweet irony, guys. Are you picking up on this? Jacob is literally confronted with who he is by his own words that come out of his own mouth. Why have you deceived me, said Jacob the deceiver. Why have you Jacob me, said Jacob. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm Jacob. That is me. Hmm. Laban specifically uses the word in verse 26 of firstborn instead of saying the older sister when he's referring to why he deceived Jacob with Leah or Leah. Uh, It's not just that Jacob was just that he was deceived, that stings, although that, that stung him. But get this. It was that he was deceived by the very same strategy that he used on his blind father. You know that's got to remind him of something, right? When his dad was in the dark, he deceived him. As the younger brother had pretended to be the firstborn to a father who was in the dark, so this firstborn daughter pretended to be the younger one to a Jacob who was in the dark. Wow. This is masterminded by God. Jacob now feels what it's like to be on the receiving end of his deceptions and his own tricks that used to work for him, and he is stung hard. He gets that. He realizes that he's tasting the consequences of his sins and it humbles him. In fact, it humbles him into utter silence. Laban says, sure, you want to? All you have to do is work a mere seven years and you can start now if you want, right? And what's Jacob do? He didn't even say anything. The narrator has to say something for him. He says, and Jacob did so. He just said, okay. No fight, no protest, no arguing. Okay, he's... He's stunned into silence. He's humbled into silence without a single protest against Laban for seven years. Brothers and sisters, we cannot trust the Lord with our life until we give up the idols that we are trusting instead of him. Did you hear what I said? We cannot trust the Lord with our life until we give up the idols we are trusting instead of him. And so God will sometimes use the things that we trust more than him to point out our need for him. You need a savior. You need God. You see, one of the kindest things that God can do for his children is to let us actually catch the idols that we're chasing. They reveal what kind of person we really are when we catch them. 
Everyone else can see them. But it's only when we catch them that we get to see them. Are we who we are really, or who we are? Are we self-centered or are we God-centered in our thinking? The idol will tell you and tell me. Are we really self-reliant or are we really God-reliant? The idol will tell us. It'll reveal that in our hearts. Sometimes God lets us feel what it's like to be a slave to our idols for a time so that we'll see our need for a Savior. We need a Savior still today. We never stop needing him. Sometimes God will let us feel the betrayal of our idols, not to give us payback or something, but to wake us up to the fact that those things cannot save us like they promise. In Hebrews 12, it says this, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary of his reproof. By him. For the Lord disciplines the one he, what's that word? He disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. If you are experiencing the discipline of the Lord right now, you need to know it's because he loves you, okay? It doesn't, it's not a sign that he hates you. It's actually hard evidence that he loves you. And he wants to rescue you from your stupid idols that you love before they cut you. He loves you. So if you're experiencing the discipline of the Lord in your life right now, here's my advice to you. Don't resist it. Don't protest it. Don't fight it. Humbly accept it. Embrace it and say it's good. It doesn't feel good, but I know it is good and will produce good in me. And then turn towards the Savior he's provided for you in faith. Repent. Turn towards the Savior he's given to you in faith. See guys, Jacob needed more than being Jacob to get him out of this problem, right? Jacob needed more than being Jacob to rescue him from the hurt of his betrayal and the slavery of sin that he now found himself in. He's trapped now, and his tricks, they don't work. His tricks, they're not gonna get him out of this now. They won't save him. And you know what? The same goes for you, and the same goes for Lingle. We need someone outside of ourselves to save us. And the good news here is this, that God has provided a Savior for us, from the line of Jacob, actually. And his name is Jesus. Jesus is the true and better Jacob for us, who redeems us, get this, by choosing to be portrayed. Not that he got tricked into it, he went in full well knowing he was going to get betrayed. He, he did sign up for that and said, I will be betrayed by the ones I'm trying to save, by the ones I'm trying to love, by the ones I'm trying to covenant with and marry. He did that. Jesus actually chooses to marry us, to covenant with us, to redeem us. Leah's. Unlovely Leah. Jesus 
chooses a bride he already knows is going to betray him. Isn't that amazing? Jesus chooses a bride he already knew is unlovely. A bride he already knew would cause him great pain and suffering. And Jesus did more than give a mere 14 years of his life to work for that. Jesus gave all of his life for all of you. And he wants you to give all of you to all of him. What love. Who has loved you like that? What sacrifice. What commitment. What an amazing Savior. That is a Savior that we can trust with our life. Not just the life to come, but with our daily life. So trust him. Turn to him and trust Jesus. Let's do that today, family. I love you guys. I want to pray for you. (sighs) Mighty, strong, sacrificing, loving Jesus. Who is like you in all the world? Thank you for covenanting and binding yourself to us though you knew we were Leah's to make us lovely. God, I pray that you would do um, something important today for us. I pray that you would be so kind as to begin to reveal the idols of our heart right now, today and throughout the week the things that we actually love in place of you, the things that are actually trapping us and we don't even know it because you're a God that if we were to serve you, you do not trap us. You're not a slave master. You're a good king. So start bringing that to the surface in our lives right now in our conversations and our thoughts. And as you do, Would you help us turn to Jesus and save us out of that? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.